As the coronavirus pandemic took the world by storm, for the first time, many people in developed countries understood what it is like to lack access to essential medicines they need to survive. For people in poor countries, lack of access to medicines has always been a problem. This podcast explores the access to medicines issue and how we can promote global health more broadly. Famous scientist Marie Curie once said that talking is the best medicine. In this podcast, we will heed the advice of Curie and discuss how we can ethically and effectively tackle the health challenges currently affecting our world. Throughout this series, we will break down and explore fascinating new research being conducted by leading researchers and activists in the diverse field of public health who have dedicated their lives to understanding the problems and identifying the solutions to health crises that impact millions of people around the world. So, sit back and enjoy this episode of Talk is the Best Medicine, brought to you by the Global Health Impact Project. Welcome to another episode of Talk is the Best Medicine. I'm Matt Pulowski, and today I am joined by Dr. Jonathan Wolf, who is the Alfred Lendecker Professor of Values and Public Policy at Oxford University. He was previously the Blavatnik Chair in Public Policy, as well as Professor of Philosophy and Dean of Arts and Humanities at University College London. His current works include developing a new research program on revitalizing democracy and civil society in accordance with the aims of the Alfred Lendecker Professorship. In addition to other projects that largely concerns equality, disadvantage, social justice and poverty, as well as applied topics such as public safety, disability, gambling, and the regulation of recreational drugs. Dr. Wolf focuses on equality, disadvantage, social justice, poverty, health, and health promotion, specifically on topics such as justice in healthcare, resource allocation, the social determinants of health, and the incentives around health behavior. He has been a member of the Nuffield Council of Bioethics, the Academy of Medical Sciences, working on drug futures, and an external member of the Board of Science of the British Medical Association. Today, Dr. Wolf will be discussing some of his recent work on the current incentives within the health system in this talk titled, Why Commercialization of Healthcare Makes Us Sick. So thank you for joining me, Dr. Wolf. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on the show. So can you tell me a little bit about yourself, like how you got interested in this uh, field of the health systems? Okay, thank you. So um, you, you just um, earlier on suggested you were going to ask this question. It got me thinking about uh, how I did get interested in it. And it goes a long way back, I think. So I think um, my mother worked as a receptionist for a doctor. And uh, when I was a teenager, I think I must have just been 15 or 16 years old, she gave me a book by the sort of anarchist thinker, Ivan Illich, called Medical Nemesis, Limits to Medicine. So this is a very controversial work, but um, it was eye-opening to me. Because in it, Illich claimed that uh, medicine has done probably more harm than good. So, so if you grow up in any developed nation, you are in awe of doctors, you're in awe of hospitals and the medical profession. You have this idea that the medical profession is full of heroes. And this book just argued that there are many ways in which we, we medicalize ordinary things. Um, and he said that the increase in life expectancy is not down to medical care, but sanitation, better sanitation. And so public health measures, public sanitation, hygiene, perhaps antibiotics, not so clear. Um, this is what has made all the difference. 
and his view was that medicine is really just a commercial industry rather than the life-saving uh, the life-saving institution that we've been led to believe so i read that and i sort of believed it and then many years later at ucl i came across the work of michael marmot on the social determinants of health this is much more scientific uh, much more rigorous uh, much better evidence sources but he argued for not the same conclusions but conclusions along similar lines that uh, what is most fateful for our health is how we live how we work the conditions that uh, we live our lives in and that he talks about uh, the health system as being like the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff the important thing is to stop people falling off the cliff rather than catching them and taking them off to hospital when they get there and that's obviously right so part of my work and thinking for the last 15 years that i've been doing this work is to try to divorce health and healthcare and try to get people to think these are quite different things obviously they're related but healthcare is by no means the only thing that affects our health and it might not be the most important so that's where uh, that's my background that's a long run up to this work yeah it's a really interesting take especially on the health system those uh, works and a great influence i would say so now without further ado i'd love to learn more about your work okay uh, thank you very much so um I'll, I'll continue telling anecdotes, I suppose, for a while uh, and, until we get into the meat of it. But it, it, this particular uh, short paper came from um, a meeting that happened in my own university. In fact, the building you can see in my Zoom background behind me, the Vatnik School of Government. And a pharmaceutical company had come to Oxford and they said that they wanted to eradicate disease in the next how many decades so it was a pharmaceutical company saying they were going to eradicate disease and they had decided to talk to a number of different departments in oxford so they went off to people doing drug discovery um, people who are doing various different forms of clinical medicine and i think as an afterthought they thought they'd come to talk to the school of government government about governance and i found that quite hard to believe that if you were talking about the eradication of disease you would go and talk to people who make pharmaceuticals because what pharmaceuticals do is cure disease they don't eradicate it and so if you're interested in eradicating disease you don't start with pharmaceuticals you start with trying to investigate the causes of diseases so if you're serious about getting rid of malaria, what you do is get rid of mosquitoes, as has happened in the United States. So I don't know how many people who live in the United States realize that uh, not so very long ago, uh, malaria was a really big problem. How was it cured? By draining swamps. In this case, literally draining swamps rather than the metaphorical draining of the swamps. So you look to see what's causing the disease and you try to remove those causes. And that way you can, if you're going to eradicate disease, that's one way to do it. Of course, vaccinations is another way. Having very efficient pharmaceuticals can do it as well. But if we are interested in health, we need to be interested in the causes of illness. And this is why the social determinants of health is so important. So then the question comes up, why are we not doing that? 
why is it that we pay so much attention to pharmaceuticals? And it, it's amazing really to me, I go to meeting after meeting with sophisticated people and when they talk about health costs and health systems and health financing, all they want to do is talk about the price of drugs. They want to talk about these uh, multinational companies who are making a fortune out of trying to sell us drugs. Some of these drugs are very effective. They do a lot of good, but they do make a lot of money. Um, but I was looking at these figures again for the UK and you know, there are different ways of counting. We spend something like 130 to 150 billion pounds a year on the, on the health system, the national health system, around about 150 billion probably this year. Who knows what it's going to end up in the end, but in a normal year. How much of that is spent on pharmaceuticals? Maybe 12 billion, um, maybe a bit more. Again, it depends how you count it. Most of that is spent on cheap generics. So only a relatively small amount is spent on patented pharmaceuticals. So we pay an enormous amount of attention to this tiny part of the health budget. So most of the budget goes on labor, buildings, heating, and so on. Probably a hospital spends more money on keeping itself clean than it does on drugs. Well, that's an exaggeration, but you can see the point there. But nevertheless, um, if you want to make money out of health, how are you going to do it? So if you think out now, what are the blockbuster drugs? What are the drugs that really make a lot of money? Again, I should have researched this. Last time I looked at it, the drugs that were making most money for pharmaceutical companies were things like fungicides uh, to keep fungal infections down for patients with diabetes, say. So uh, you, you can have a condition that is causing you great discomfort, but there's a cream and medication that you can apply to yourself that reduces your discomfort. It doesn't cure it. It doesn't cure the problem. It reduces the symptoms. And if you are a business analyst advising someone in the health center, what you, the health area, what you would do is find yourself a condition that is extremely unpleasant for people who have it. It makes their life extremely uncomfortable. Maybe it even threatens their life. What you want is a condition that you can't cure because as soon as you've cured it, you're not going to sell another drug to them. So you want to find a condition, a chronic health condition, that's very uncomfortable or life-threatening. And you want people, roughly speaking, to hand over 10% of their wealth to you for the rest of their life to remain comfortable in this health condition. And that's roughly the business model for a lot of pharmaceutical companies. Find a thing that will make people dependent on you for the rest of their life and make them, you are improving their lives, but you're not, you're not curing them. And I was amazed that um, after I gave this talk, completely by coincidence, though a business analyst in the US, management consultant, gave a talk to pharmaceutical companies and he said that you're curing too many diseases. This is a problem because once you've cured the disease, you can't sell another drug to that patient. So please stop curing the diseases so you can carry on um, selling drugs that will maintain them in their chronic condition. So that's my sort of rhetorical statement there. And the idea is, you know, so, so obviously there's a pun in the title about how the commercialization of health makes us sick. Uh, it makes us sick in the sense of 
giving us an emotional reaction to it. But in fact, there's an argument that the commercialization of health needs to keep us sick in order to make money from us. The last thing the pharmaceutical companies really want to do is to cure our illnesses. So then the question is, if we are going to eradicate disease, how do we do it? How do we go around starting looking at what to do? And I just thought, um, let's try to link up a few different parts of the debate here. So if you've got someone who has a very uncomfortable, painful, debilitating disease, first thing you want to do is to uh, reduce their symptoms, alleviate the symptoms. So that's the most superficial thing. And that, I said, is where the money is, alleviating people's symptoms. But the next level down, of course, is to try to cure the disease they have rather than just alleviate the symptoms. That can be done sometimes. Um, antibiotics produce a cure. Some forms of surgery produce a, a cure. We don't actually have all that many real cures for diseases. Um, some forms of cancer can be cured through very expensive uh, long-term forms of treatment. But um, the body's own healing power probably is the best cure we have for anything. Um, just by way of aside, when I was a student, I went to a performance of The Doctor's Dilemma by George Bernard Shaw. I've never been able to find this in the text, so I don't know if it was a sort of embellishment by the director on the day, but one of the uh, actors is playing a doctor. This is in the 19th century, and he, he advertises cure guaranteed. And another doctor says, how can you do that? How can you possibly advertise cure guaranteed? The first doctor says, well, it's easy. 90% uh, of people get better on their own and the other 10% die, so they're not going to sue you. So that also was a very important thing for me, that the body's own curing power is, is very powerful in many cases, not, not every case, but many cases. So going back to the health chain, first level, we have trying to alleviate the symptoms of a disease. Second level, we try to cure. Third level, I mean, there are different ways in which you might chop up the levels. Um, it's not terribly important. But there are forms of prevention. So prevention through vaccination. So again, you have a product you can sell. So it's still commercialization there. So three levels of commercialization, I suppose. Um, alleviate the symptoms, cure the disease, pre prevent through vaccination. But when Americans are being prevented from getting malaria because the swamps were drained 50 years ago or 100 years ago, no one's making any money out of that anymore. So no individual private company has an incentive to do that. It's very interesting to me thinking about the difference between an insurance-based system, as you have in the US, with many different providers of healthcare and a single provider system, as we have in the UK. Not that it works perfectly, but one of the big questions is who has a financial incentive to keep the population healthy, the population as a whole. Who has a financial incentive to advertise, to invest in public health measures? Well, if you're one insurance company among many in a region, you don't, because you've got no way of having those public health um, measures just for your own customers. You'll be 
providing those benefits for everyone in the region, whether they're one of your customers or not. So unless you really have a monopoly provider in an area, you don't have anyone with a financial incentive for public health to keep keeping people well. This goes against the grain, I think, of a lot of thinking in free market e economics, because we tend to think of monopolies as a bad thing because they can uh, profiteer. But in the area of health provision, if you don't have a monopoly, then you don't have anyone with an individual incentive to promote public health like sanitation or uh, improved conditions of safety at work for the sake of saving money and the health system and so on. So uh, what I came to think is that the, way the deeper you go into the causes of illness and saving people from illness, the harder it is to find anyone with an incentive to do anything about it. So at the top level, pharmaceutical companies want to sell you drugs, that takes us a certain way. Beyond that, the pharmaceutical companies have the opposite incentive actually, they want to keep us ill so that we buy out their drugs rather than making us healthy. If you're a national health service, you have an incentive in keeping the population healthy because you don't have to have so many hospitals, don't have to train so many doctors. But if you're a private health provider, that's the last thing you want. You want customers, you don't want uh, people to remain healthy. So um, to round up a bit, the, the thought is if we want to have the healthiest possible population, what should we do? Well, what we should do is stop people getting ill. That's the main thing we should do. Um, and we're not very good at this. So um, going back to connecting up with the social idea of the social determinants of health, uh, Michael Marmot has really publicized this and he has made a big influence on people's thinking in the UK and in Europe and I know in Latin America as well. It's very hard to translate the thinking into, into practice because it turns out that the things we need to make people healthy are the things we independently have good reason to do. So to make people healthy, we have to give them uh, homes that are not damp. We have to give them homes that are not overcrowded. We have to give them working conditions that are safe. We have to bring people out of poverty. If we do all of these things, we start making people healthy. But we're already trying to do those. So the question is, what innovation in health policy can we do as a result of knowing about the social determinants of health? So I tried to turn this on its head and I thought, well, what do governments do that make people ill? So do our governments actually make us ill in some ways? And it's fascinating. So I was just by coincidence, I was at another webinar last week or the week before. And someone was, and it was, part of it was about access to justice. And someone said that there are statistics now that if you have a legal dispute, suppose you have a legal dispute of some sort, let me hope none of you do, uh, but suppose you do, something like a quarter of the people who have a legal dispute say it has made their mental or physical health worse. That if you, if you go to court, it makes you ill. So isn't that interesting? There's something about our system that makes us ill. 
is there a way of redesigning criminal justice so it doesn't make people so ill? Think of the many ways in which you have to interact with government. So my American friends tell me about the tax return they have to fill in and the receipts they have to do and how long it takes them and they have to get professional help and so on. It's an incredibly complicated bureaucratic system. Almost every way of interacting with the states is unnecessarily bureaucratic and causes stress and worry in people's lives. So I wouldn't be surprised if the government is reducing life expectancy by the way it has us fill in forms, by the way it has us interact with it. So there are lots, I think, of once you get away from the idea of health is determined by healthcare, there are lots of very imaginative ways you can think about how the world makes us ill and different ways we can change the world without resorting to pharmaceuticals. Well, I suggested, because this original talk was aimed at pharmaceutical companies, I didn't want to say you're redundant and that we can do without you. But what, what I wanted to say is that they do have a lot of expertise about physiology. And what we need is pharmaceutical companies to work with other agents in civil society and within government to try and form partnerships where they can pool their expertise to intervene at the most appropriate level. Okay, so I think I'll stop at that point and, of course, extremely happy to take any questions. All right, thank you very much for that. Great talk, Dr. Wolf. So now we'll turn to the Q&A segment where I have a few questions for you as well as some from the audience and if anybody wants to add anything to the chat. So I'll start us off. So you mentioned how insurance companies, either in competition with one another, have an incentive to maximize profits by pushing treatments or possibly cures on the levels one through three in the health chain. Do you think there is a place for the private companies or do you think direct government control would be the most efficient and effective way? Or do we think it has to be some sort of hybrid system? Yeah, um, so this is obviously a hot topic in the UK at the moment. We have a national health system, We've got a conservative government and um, there is real concern that uh, our government wants to open up the NHS to American companies. Somehow it's thought that um, if you put American in front of it, it's a very scary prospect for us <laughs> to have US style healthcare uh, coming in. And that pushes up prices, reduces quality. People think even though if you defend the free market, it's meant to go the other way, that prices are meant to come down and quality is meant to go up. So I'm quite pragmatic about this. I mean, the, the, there was a very interesting moment in, I think it was the Bush uh, administration, where a, a law had been proposed, I'm not sure what level it, it had got to, to extend Medicaid, Medicaid would it be? Yeah, Medicaid to the children of uninsured parents. Because you could say, well, the parents, if they decided not to insure themselves, that's their lookout, but their kids, really should not have to be punished because of the actions of their parents. And I think this got quite a bit of support, but it was eventually vetoed on the grounds that this was socializing medicine. Right? It was social, this is socialized medicine, socialism, it's socialized medicine, it's socialism and un-American. So we couldn't give kids free healthcare because that was un-American. Of course, you know, that got a lot of criticism in, in Europe. But, but just about at the same time, um, a bank in Scotland offered to give a very expensive bit of machinery, I think it was a body scanner of some sort, to a hospital in Edinburgh. 
And this was massively criticized because they wanted to reserve half of it for their own staff, half of the use for their own staff. They will put this um, equipment in the hospital, we'll donate half of it to the Scottish Health Service, but we'll keep half of the use of it for our own staff. And people said, that's creeping privatization. We can't have that. And I thought, well, that's just as ideologically blinkered as they're criticizing the Americans for, for or at least the Republicans for socialized medicine. There's a lot of ideology here. And it seems to me that in any service, um, you just need to look at the different roles and to see what's best done by the private sector and what's best done by the, by the state. Um, so it looks like drug discovery is done best by a combination. So the state pays for basic research, um, dedicated university researchers work away, they discover a effect of some sort, they publish it in an obscure journal, the private sector finds out and then tries to develop some technological spin-off from it. And maybe it's a failing model now, but it's worked in the past. Similarly, uh, if you have cleaning in a hospital, it seems to me you should decide whether you need a private contracting company or you can do it better yourself. So these are pragmatic questions. Um, in the UK, I think a lot of people in the UK haven't really fully accepted this or understand it, but, but our GPs, our doctors, they're not state employees. They're small business people. They're running their own business. So in fact, we have a you know, private medicine in a sense running all the way through the NHS because we have commercial suppliers of NHS products. Uh, so I think there is a very important distinction between a single payer and a single provider. And in the UK, we think we have both. We don't. We think most people think we have single payer and single provider. We're a single payer, apart from the small private sector, um, but we're multiple providers. We have multiple providers. And in other countries in Europe, um, that's even more so. So I'm very pragmatic. I don't think that everything needs to be provided by the state, but I do think that public health probably needs to be provided either by the state or by a monopoly insurance company. Um, but if you've got a monopoly insurance company, then you've got some other problems probably that you need to deal with through very strong regulation. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned those uh, doctors on the local level. Do you think they can do anything since they are running their own small businesses? I, I assume in the UK you mentioned as well as here in the mm -hmm. US. Can they also do anything to steer our health systems away from profit-driven incentives? Or do we think it's more on the level of those large insurance companies you mentioned or the government? Yeah, so it's, it's a very good question. It's partly down to temperament, I think, because uh, what seems to happen is every now and again, there's a scandal about a doctor who's been very much profit-seeking. Um, so the, you know, the government is constantly giving us incentives, giving doctors incentives. And, and you can see the economic model for this. So smoking, let us suppose, costs the NHS quite a lot of money and we, we lose health years. So the idea would be if we can encourage people to stop smoking, then we can save the NHS a lot of money and increase life expectancy. So what's not to like about it? Fantastic. So what do you do? How do you actually do that? So this then gets translated into very crude measures where you know, doctors have to or doctors are encouraged to ask people about their smoking and tell them not to smoke right, as if it's going to have any effect 
but they're given certain times i'm not sure what's happening at the moment but certain times they've been given these very clear incentives fill in this questionnaire if you fill in this questionnaire with the patient you get a bit more money so there's sort of nhs money creaming by doing these sort of silly public health measures which won't really have any effect and they're well-meaning um, and it's very hard to know what else to do but they're, they're sort of stupid and, and also some doctors have increased the role of patients they have um, in order to get payment per patient so there, there are those things that go against health because they're following commercial incentives but that's that's relatively small it used to be that um, doctors were able to get gifts from pharmaceutical companies for prescribing some pharmaceuticals rather than others. Um, that doesn't really happen, I don't think, anymore. Um, one big difference between the UK and the US is that there's no, in the UK, there's no direct-to-consumer advertising of prescription drugs. So I, I was amazed the first time, first few times I came to the States to turn on the television. There'd be advertisement after advertisement after advertisement for things you couldn't buy yourself. It was always about ask your far, you know, ask your doctor for this, right? So that, so that you're being advertised to put pressure on a doctor to ask for something, which may or may not be what the doctor thinks is the right thing for you, but they might give it to you just to shut you up if you make enough noise. Whereas in the UK, we don't have that. And most people don't even know what's available until they're ill and then they start looking it up and that reduces that reduces the pressure to over diagnose and over prescribe yeah i can definitely tell you those uh, ads we get those a lot definitely but um turning slightly a bit now to maybe the benefits of also the farm like pharmaceuticals and the different drugs mm. do you think that we should be simultaneously addressing the domestic needs of efficient health planning and the international problem of access to essential health care of of distributing these medications because they can have a positive impact these drugs yeah um well of course we we, we should be looking at um questions of global distribution and who pays for it how they're delivered um the when you start looking at some of the details it gets much more difficult and depressing than you think it might do um because I think a lot of, quite often, the way in which problems about access to medicine is set up is, is that pretty much we know what to do. We just need the money to do it. Right? Um, and so you know, these drugs are expensive. HIV drugs are expensive. We need someone to pay for them or we need to manufacture generics. And that will be uh, yeah, enough to get drugs. Um, now, if you're in a hospital where the power is very unreliable and goes out for a few hours a day, then you know, that's your cold chain ruined. And, and any drug that needs refrigeration can't survive. So it's not about the so this is going to be one of the very important things for if there's a vaccine for COVID. But if it's most vaccines need cold chain, um, how you get cold chain vaccine to rural uh, you know, parts of the world, even rural parts of the developed world, actually, in some cases, is, is not a trivial matter at all. So yeah, there's this thing people used to say, I don't know if they still do, you know, how come Coca-Cola can get Coca-Cola everywhere and we can't get drugs everywhere? The answer is you don't need to keep Coca-Cola refrigerated. It's like, yeah, can you get American ice cream everywhere? That, you know, that's the, 
that's what we're looking at. And of course, you can't get American ice cream everywhere because it's going to melt on the way. Um, so we have these enormous logistical problems. So I, so I take, generally speaking about development, I take a view which is against the grain of most people, I think. Because most people think we know what to do, we just need the money. I think we've got the money, we don't know what to do. And that if we did know what to do, if we, re if we had really successful programs, if we really knew how to improve maternal mortality in a dramatic way, the donors would flood in. Like, you know, if, we, if there was a TV program that showed that for a few hundred million dollars, we could you know, cut maternal mortality in half, and we really could, it wasn't just a made up promise, then the money would flow. So I think the you know, political philosophers were much better at talking about money and taxation and distribution and redistribution and access to medicines. We're not so good about talking about logistics and supply chains and operations. And I think that really is where the action is in, in my view. Mm -hmm. And about these, uh, like if the developing world, for example, where you're advocating also for really fixing the system, like the sanitation system, as well as the logistics you mentioned, if we can create a pill that really could do a cure or a really strong treatment, would you say that would be non-optimal still just because, uh, whereas it may not be as effective in the long term, um, it may have the short term uh, results yeah. that we're looking for. So are pills a non-optimal option just because of the side effects, would you say? No, I think, uh, so I, I think you make a very good point. Um, someone who annoyed me quite a lot generally uh, trotted out the, the cliche, um, prevention is always better than cure. And because I didn't like the person, I thought, okay, I'm going to come up with some counterexamples here. And, <laughs> and I, I thought that actually, you know, if the, if the cure is really cheap and has no side effects and prevention is going to be really difficult, then, you know, I'm all for cure in, in terms of the pill. So if you think about um, headaches, we can cure headaches with a simple pill or at least mitigate most of them if we tried if, if we decided that our goal our public health goal was to eliminate headaches by taking all the headache inducing things out of the environment and that was that feels like overkill relative to the problem we're dealing with okay so pollution is another matter of people dying of lung, of lung cancer because of pollution we want to get the pollutants out but it, it's a really interesting question. I mean, it, it does go to a deep question about human flourishing, I think. That um, is, is there something almost perverse or corrupt about allowing it, people to get ill, but giving them the pill that cures it, rather than saying, no, we're going to stop you getting ill in the first place. It felt, for some reason, it feels like a cheaper world um, in, in which we've allowed these bad things to happen, but given ourselves a cure for them, rather than just not stopping the bad thing happening in the first place. So I think that does get us into, into much deeper questions about the nature of a human being and the nature of human flourishing. Mm -hmm. And now turning a bit to also the pandemic that we're in. We've seen in the news recently, a lot of pharmaceutical companies um, who are either announcing different drugs, how they are promising to give it to uh, certain parts of the developing world. Do you think that this is a positive where that we can pressure these pharmaceutical companies now that they're receiving more scrutiny than ever to change their incentives for outcomes rather than profits? 
Okay, so it's a, it's a very, very interesting issue um, from on, on many levels. Obviously, obviously it, in some ways, this is the most urgent question in the world at the moment about how, how can we get a vaccine for the pandemic, assuming it doesn't, you know, once early on, we hoped it might burn itself out on its own, but um, there doesn't seem to be any sign of that happening. So we need either very good therapies or a vaccine, it seems. Um, so this is a this is such an important moment for the pharmaceutical industry um, because they could be heroes or they could be villains at this point. And if uh, a pharmaceutical company uh, is first to market, it's a decent product. They can they can produce it in large numbers. If all they do is sell it to the highest bidders at the highest price, then the outcry against them will be unbelievable. Um, you know, whether or not they've taken government money, uh, we will think that, you know, how can a commercial company hold us to ransom like this? So my understanding is that the pharmaceutical companies have said they will sell at cost price, that they're not going to um, try to make a profit. Uh, what they want to do, I think, is to be the, have the moral high ground yeah. No, they. You know, who wouldn't want to be the pharmaceutical company that could put on your logo the company that saved the world, you know, the company that saved humanity? So the, you know, the goodwill that the companies will get from producing this, I think, it will be their reward. And then, no doubt, they can use it in other ways to their commercial advantage later on. So I think um, maybe very early on, people were thinking about it in commercial terms, but. My understanding, and I may be naive here, you know, I, may, I may have been listening to one branch of the pharmaceutical companies and not the other branch of the same companies, but, but my understanding is, is that this won't be profit gouging because it's too important for that. Mm -hmm. Especially over the summer, I've heard about a lot of these pharmaceutical companies who have been saying that they will give these vaccine dosages to the developed world and have set aside a certain quota. However, others who are doing other trials have not come out and at least declared it. Yeah. Do you think there's anything that the, should national governments be mandating some sort of aspect on that? Should the, the United Nations, the World Health Organization mm -hmm. be doing something like that? Can yeah. us as the average citizenry, can we mm -hmm. do something to demand that they do something about that? What would you suggest for that? Yeah, so the, so the only agents with the power to do it are the national governments. Um, I, you know, the WHO, as far as I know, doesn't have the power to tell pharmaceutical companies what to do. It's, uh, that's not how the jurisdiction is set up. But I think, you know, this is perfectly reasonable that um, at a certain point, the, I, mean, I suppose it's possible to produce the vaccine in large quantities around the world generically. It's going to be, you know, and suppose India and Brazil set up factories to produce generics for the for their regions um okay an american company might sue them um it's going to be very hard to see how uh, those cases are going to not be thrown out of court one way or another or overridden by new legislation so it does feel to me unless the world goes even more crazy than it has done which you know who knows which direction we're going in it, it seems to me that sanity will prevail and that no one will be allowed to make um, excess profits out of this. You know, people have to pay their staff, they have to meet their costs. 
So that has to be dealt with somehow. But I, I'm sure there's pretty universal agreement that it shouldn't be at the expense of poor people in poor countries. And that there are, there are enough donors who would come in, I'm sure, to again, to be the hero here, to, to make all the difference. So there, the problem is, well, first of all, the problem is getting a vaccine. So we, um, I'm, I was trying to decide the other day whether to sign up for the Oxford trial or not. Um, I, I just haven't got around to it. I would, I would sign up for it. Um, but you know, we, we have no idea whether any of these vaccines will really work in a long-term and effective way. Um, but suppose they do. But then we've got question manufacturing and distribution. Um, and, and again, you know, maybe I'm naive here, but I think money is the least of our problems here and profit is the least of our problems. So it's one, once we know what we're dealing with, the money will be there one way or another to, uh, to, to provide the vaccines we, we need. I mean, the questions are going to be who gets it first. And there's absolutely, I mean, suppose it's an American company who develops it. It's hard to believe that the US will let any of it out of the country until everyone is vaccinated or everyone who wants it is vaccinated. Whereas the WHO has argued that, you know, I think it's 5% of each nation should be uh, vaccinated first. And that there's no way that the US is going to hand over 95% of you know, the vaccine that would have done the other 95% of the population so that Bangladesh can have vaccination. So there's a certain level of real politic here and I would say that um, the real difficulty we're going to face is not so much the commercial interests, but the national interests. So people talk about vaccine nationalism and, and it's very hard mindset to get out of. But suppose the US has, you know, a US company is the first and it has exactly the right number of vaccines for the US population. Would you not be outraged if it gave even a small amount away if there are some Americans who want the vaccine and couldn't get it? But so unless you, un unless the government showed you somehow it was in American interests to give it to Mexico or Canada or something to stop uh, reinfection, I think you know, most people in their own country are instinctive vaccine nationalists and will think that of course, we can be generous with the excess or the surplus, but maybe we ought to keep enough back for the next generation or if we need a booster or something, we can't give it away just in case. So I think that that is going to be the mindset that's going to be hard, very hard to shift. The idea that we've got to look after our own country first before we do anything else. You, yeah, you raise a very great question about kind of how we, each country should be maintaining their own supply of vaccines or whether they should be giving it to other nations. And you also raised a question about the future generations. So hopefully I'm assuming a post COVID world or even just somewhere down the line. Do you think, I do think resources will be a factor in the sense of whether what we choose to fund. Right now in the United States, I know especially we've been caught kind of by surprise where our vaccine uh, resources really have been lacking. Do you think in the post-COVID world or later down the line, the world should focus more of its resources on these vaccine development programs. So if there's another COVID or if there's another strain that comes out, we can affect it more quickly? Or do you think it'd be better if we uh, invested in the social determinants of health that you talked about and try to hit the base level of 
the sanitation, stopping the spread through different hand washing campaigns and stuff like that. Yeah, well, it's interesting. So I think, so I think I take a different view to you. I, I think the response in vaccine development has been incredible. So it's it's hard to know how it could have gone faster. I think that um, you know to have drugs in the early stages of testing, even within a few months of the virus being identified, is not something that has happened before. But I think the you know, the post-COVID world is going to be an interesting place to be living, assuming we're still in it. Um, because I think if you if you travelled in China or Hong Kong lately, even before COVID, you would see young people wearing masks in the street. And, and sometimes that's for pollution, um, but not always. And I was talking to someone from Hong Kong who said, uh, we've been going around for the last few years, opening doors with our elbows rather than our hands, because we know that there are viruses around, because we've had it, we've been through this. And so the post-virus world, there's much more hygiene, hand washing. What makes a lot of sense to me is the idea is that the world is a dangerous place, but we can't protect ourselves against every danger. You know? And so we, we choose to protect ourselves against some dangers rather than others. So if you're in most urban countries, we pay a lot of attention to crime. We lock our doors, you know, there's police around. We don't, you, know, you, you would never go walking down the street with a handful of money like that. You know, you'd hide it, so you'd, you'd, you'd take that precaution. But at the same time, you shake a stranger's hand. Um, you would stand close to someone in the crowd who might sneeze on you. So we, we take lots of precautions against the risks we see, but we get more relaxed about some other risks. And that makes perfect sense because there's a sort of human bandwidth. We can't worry about everything all the time. And I, th I think so my, no, the safe prediction to make for the post-COVID world is that we're going to be much more sensitized to issues of hygiene. So it might be quite a long time before handshaking comes back in. Because you know, why were we doing that anyway? <laughs> it's um, <laughs> what to show we, I don't have a sword or something, or I don't have a dagger in my hand. So you know, there, there are these stupid things, um, and you know, friends in France and Italy who, who you know, have to kiss each other three times when they meet, so they, they can't wait to not have to do that anymore. Um, so you know, there are going to be certain things about close body contact that we've been taking for granted. Maybe some sorts of things like the way nightclubs operate or ventilation. So there are going to be lots of things we do that are responsive to the possibility of the next virus, even if we get a good vaccine for this one. So, and it's about attitude to risk. But having said that, I'm not sure I answered your question. Did I answer it or was there something I missed? No. Basically, I just was wondering if you think social determinants of health, like the factors like mm. Mm. You talked about even police, you talked about our customs, you talked about earlier sanitation, if those okay, should be yeah. things that should be invested in more in the future in the post-COVID world. Okay, so I think, so thank you for bringing back to that. I had a nagging feeling I'd miss something out. So, so what is fascinating about, um, well, so many things fascinating and disturbing is how the patterns of illness have gone. So if you take, so I know it best about the UK. So who were the first people to get ill? In the UK, well, they were relatively rich people who'd been skiing in Italy because the um, first transmissions came from people who were coming back from their Italian skiing holidays. But that group isolated. They had big houses where everyone can have their own room, had gardens, 
they could afford people to deliver groceries to them. They didn't have to go out to work. They could afford to take a few weeks off work or work from home. And so people who are in a relatively privileged group are live in a world like I do, where, you know, if I, if I never had to leave my flat again, you know, I'd hate that, of course, but I could survive. But there are people living one street away from me, and if they never left their flat again, they couldn't survive because they need to leave. They, all the work they can do, they have to be out of the house for. So what we're seeing, Paul Farmer at, at Harvard made a brilliant point about HIV. And he said, what happens very often with infectious disease is it starts with the privileged because they're the ones that travel and get about. But it very soon filters down into people who are less privileged and it ends up with the least advantaged people in society. And that's what's happened with HIV in the US. Uh, so it's not rich people who are dying, if anyone is dying, of HIV related causes. And but for a time it was. So I, I think the, if we think about the social determinants of health, in this context, we have to think, you know, what are the conditions that transmit viruses between people? And if you're living in overcrowded accommodation where you can't isolate, that's going to be a really serious problem. Whether we can address that is another matter because it is housing renewal with a rising population is unbelievably expensive to do. So you know, we need to be creative about it. But I think the uh, social determinants of health help us think about you know what is making people ill what is get what is exposing people and what can we do to reduce that exposure in the future so i think there are lessons to be learned but this is one of those areas where we do need pharmaceuticals we need a vaccine and we we need uh therapies for people who have fallen ill but at the same time we we need to deal with the disease. I mean, if you, just to finish this thought, I uh, was working with a research fellow from Vietnam who gave a paper um, at the Blavatnik School on Vietnam's response. And at that time, the UK probably had had something like 25,000 deaths. And you know how many deaths there were in Vietnam? Zero at that time. Since then, I think there have been a small number because they had a little second outbreak and a few people died but it's certainly less than 100 and it might even be less than 10 and so this is a very big country people are living on top of each other very crowded accommodation um, it doesn't have economic resources a lot of people don't have internet at home but they managed to stem the infection and they did it with the most old-fashioned forms of infection control they got people to stay home and you know, if you're staying home, you're not passing it on. And so they were able to restart the economy much earlier than others just by doing simple things, just by taking it seriously. And so this is very much going back to this uh, Ivan Illich, and that we have this incredible respect for the prestigious healthcare system, but it's simple things about stopping people infecting each other that is going to be uh, more effective, at least if we want a sustainable situation that's adaptable to different types of infection. Thank you. I'll finish up with one last question because it seems like we're running out of time here, but do you think if the health chain, the lower levels of the health chain would have been implemented, do you think we could have at least mitigated or even avoided this whole coronavirus pandemic that has affected the entire world? 
Yeah. Well, different countries have done it in different ways. And the, the countries that have done best are the ones that have got a very effective but very old-fashioned public health system with contact tracers. One of my former colleagues at UCL, Anthony Costello, who's become uh, quite prominent in the debate in the UK, you know, when he was listening to... So sorry, we, we have a programme that has been mooted by the government. It's unbelievable. They want to spend £100 billion, which is about two-thirds of the NHS budget, into testing, the testing regime. But it requires a test that hasn't been invented yet. But no, never mind. They, you know, they want us to do this type of testing. And they're calling it moonshot. So you know, it's absolutely laughable that um, so Anthony Costello was interviewed. And they said, what do you think about the moonshot? And he said, we don't need the moonshot, we need shoe leather, right? which he meant just people going out with a clipboard, talking to people who've been in, or you do it on Zoom now rather than a clipboard, but, but talking to people who have been in contact with people who've been in contact with people who've had no infection. So these very old fashioned public health contact tracing, it, you know, this is not the first infection the world has ever had, not the first pandemic. You know, we've got 2,000 years, probably 4,000 years of recorded history of how to deal with it. And what you do is you build up a big, a big system of public health that you don't use most of the time. I think this is, this is one of the problems that we, we, we've lost the sense of keeping things in reserve, having slack. We want everything to be most efficient. And if it's not being used, we close it down. But uh, you don't do that with the military. If you, if you haven't fought a war this year, you don't start closing down the army. You think, well, lucky we've got an army for when we need it. And what has happened with public health? All over the world, people have said, well, we, you know, this is old fashioned. We've got technological solutions for everything now. We don't need this. So we can decimate the systems we had. But then when we need them, they're not there and they take a long time to reinvent and the technological solutions at the moment don't seem to work very well. So we need to think of public health as like a standing army that we, we need for emergencies rather than um, some, something we're going to use effectively to its full capacity you know, every week. I definitely agree. I think hopefully the one caveat that can come out of COVID is that we realize what we need for a health system for the future and not only for a pandemic, for really everything. So I wanna thank you again, Dr. Wolf, for joining us today and raising these really interesting points. For our listeners who wanna learn more about Dr. Wolf and his work, you can find a link to his biography and his work down below in the description. So thank you very much again. It's absolutely my pleasure. Thanks, Matt, and uh, thank you all for being here and listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To find more of our content or explore the exciting work being done by our parent organization, the Global Health Impact Project, you can check out our website in the description below. The Global Health Impact Project hopes to support efforts like this podcast to provide information about and advocate for access to essential medicines. Also, follow the Global Health Impact Project social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time, don't forget, talking is the best medicine. And a special thanks to the funding provided by the World Health Organization through the Grant for Global Health Justice and Equitable Vaccine Allocation.